Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Good afternoon from Singapore. Welcome to Radio Finance. This is Grace Chung, your host and moderator for the next 30 minutes. Our topic for today is dealing with fraud during COVID-19. I'm pleased to introduce my co-host today, uh, the managing editor of the Asian banker, Fu Bunpeng. So Richard, let me turn to you. You are our uh, cybercrime expert. What has been the impact of COVID-19 on the financial um, uh, scene today? So how has the shift towards digital transactions created vulnerabilities and security risks that criminals can exploit? Uh, we see that, um, uh, for instance, a lot of folks are doing uh, you know, cash-based money laundering using Hawala, which is uh, kind of uh, very prevalent in, in this region. Uh, they've been actually forced up into uh, more digital channels, which uh, one uh, kind of exposes them. But I think what we're seeing as well is that uh, you're getting a lot of new uh, digital bank accounts uh, that you didn't previously see. And uh, I think that in itself, yeah. So kind of given the fact that we have uh, is, um, different types of criminal activity out there, um, there is a need to to definitely innovate. So the challenge is a lot of uh, kind of mainstream banks hadn't traditionally done that the, uh, previously. It was always a, a requirement to have the person come in, sit down, and you uh, kind of go through um, you know their details to see them. Um, now it's a lot of banks i think are going to be caught out and have to retool so that they can almost operate similar to uh, some of these um, new age banks like the the revoluts or the uh, crypto uh, exchanges mm. doing the whole thing electronically so um and being able to do that quickly uh that would probably expose some kinds of gaps uh, because if it's something that's not uh, kind of in your DNA. Can I just turn to Roland and ask you, what are the emerging trends you see, specifically in areas like identity and, and data theft and money laundering and payment fraud? Um, what, we, what we already saw in criminals, that they were you know, more and more getting interested in uh, digital actions and dealing with digital crime. I mean, this goes back like 10 years even, where we had you know our... Uh, top tier uh, criminals in uh, in jail uh, that you know I want to pivot from from violent crime to cybercrime because it's easier to make money. So already that incentive existed, and uh, one often overlooked uh, group in this uh, are uh, kids. I have to say, um, yeah. especially in countries like mine and and also like Singapore, where you know uh, there's a there's a lot of digital. Uh, tools available uh, and kids might be a little bit bored after school. Uh, um, they tend to experiment online and they tend to sometimes do things that uh, are technically cyber crimes. And what we're doing in the Netherlands is that we actually uh, devised the whole program as the Dutch National Police for kids who want to uh, kind of try their own hacking skills and, uh, you know, uh, do it in a way where they don't commit any crime. So that's that's an additional benefit because actually, uh, you know, honing their uh, IT skills and then hopefully uh, still being able to use those for the good of society later on. Uh, now, when we talk about uh, types of crime, as an example, what we're seeing in the Netherlands is that, uh, you know, your, your uh, WhatsApp related um, 
you know, phone scam, the WhatsApp scam and, and, and fraud has uh, tripled uh, as compared to a year ago. So uh, we, we're seeing uh, three times as many uh, people filing police reports about the type of crimes being defrauded in that. And our friends at Europol, the, the European uh, Law Enforcement uh, Collaboration Agency, they figured that they're, they, they're seeing around 120,000 new websites that are related to COVID. So that's quite, uh, quite a growth. And uh, finally, we already uh -huh. saw some, uh, uh, some, some statistics about ransomware and other types of blackmail. Uh, you know, there's, there's actually people being threatened th through digital means with the virus. People saying, if you pay me a Bitcoin, I will infect you or your family. So that's quite terrible. I mean, some people are uh, might be uh, a little bit susceptible to that. And they must be living in fear just because people yeah. think it's an easy way to make money. Uh, we actually had some cases in the UK where, um, you know, there's some apps uh, where it's quite easy if you, if you know, like the access code to join a conversation. And it was a case of... Uh, uh, a journalist from the Financial Times who actually listened into their competitors' meetings that way. And, and I noticed just now in the poll that actually people are quite worried about uh, uh, account takeover and hacking into transactions, etc. Thank you, Roland. You mentioned about you know, this emerging trend of kids who are bored at home and trying their hands at hacking. Um, now, to, to law enforcement and you know, for financial crime departments or banks, um, how worrisome is this? Um, what are the chances of them being recruited by you know, bigger crime syndicates? It's, a, it's an important point that you're making. Um, so obviously, just randomly brute forcing accounts uh, nowadays where most uh, banks, fortunately, have two-factor authentication in place, uh, that isn't the big issue. You know, in, in Asia, we see a little bit more uh, defacements, I would say. Uh, here in Europe, and especially in the Netherlands, we still have kids who think it's really cool. And it's it's also relatively easy, of course, to DDoS organizations just to, you know, um, and make, not even make a statement, but just to see, oh, wow, the whole country is being annoyed by this and I'm doing this. Um, I personally don't consider that to be, you know, a, a hacking skill, but it is a type of cybercrime. Uh, it is something we got to mm -hmm. deal with. And finally, your point about being recruited. Yes, I actually uh, have a... I have a colleague, younger colleague, who has a friend, et cetera, et cetera. And they were once, you know, uh, having a drink. Uh, and the, the friend actually uh, had received an offer from, you know, somebody who said, oh, I like that you're, you're very able to, um, uh, you're very skilled at working uh, Blackberries and programming apps for them. And would you not be interested in programming a very uh, security tight uh, app for the Blackberry? So that we communicate very securely. Uh, he, he decided not to to do that. Uh, uh, years after this had happened for this specific kid, uh, we actually uh, found a whole gang who were dealing in these so-called black phones. Um, and uh, the, the people who are providing the services, more importantly uh, for them, uh, as soon as the operation was, you know, uh, came to the attention of the police and you know, we arrested some of them and, and uh, the criminals found out that, oh, wow, my data might not be fully secure there. Uh, this just goes mm -hmm. to show that your point is very valid, that if you, you know, if you let the criminals into your life, they might take it over. I, this is one I'd like to have uh, follow-up questions to uh, uh, Richard's earlier point about you know, uh, institutions today as crime is moving uh, to the cyberspace, uh, to digital, there's a need to retool and to reskills, right? Um, I know. And also, 
in terms of new form of players coming into the uh, market, it also opens up a, a greater vulnerability because they're not traditional, right? If you are traditional banks, AML compliance, KYC is bread and butter. Uh, to the, the, the newer institutions, it's all about customer experience, uh, having to ex uh, balance experience with security. Um, how are you dealing with that? Uh, and, and where do you see in terms of the regulator expectation between incumbent players and new players? Is there a level playing field when it comes to security? I think a lot of the regulators are actually being quite cooperative and providing some pretty good guidance. Um, I, the good thing, I guess, in, in Singapore, for instance, um, things like, um, I guess, uh, EKYC, e kind of uh, not having a kind of remote KYC or uh, meeting the requirement to meet your um, customer is uh, kind of been, been waived. Uh, so it's a framework is always been in place. So I think uh, some banks have been being prepared for that. I think in a lot of countries, that's not the case. They were always uh, needing to meet the person. Now they have to kind of scramble um, and put in place the, the means to do um, uh, kind of contactless uh, KYC. Um, the other thing that you, they're going to struggle with uh, in the KYC side is the fact that there are new topologies popping up uh, with relation to COVID. And that means um, you're going to be have to be in a position to um, detect those. Um, and that is something that's kind of difficult for a lot of in, uh, institutions to do. And you also have a large bureaucratic process as well, uh, sign-offs. So as the criminals retool and you get a whole flood of new topologies coming from uh, various bodies like, uh, you know, European Banking Association uh, are putting some of these out. A lot of the law enforcement agencies are putting these out as well. I think it's very difficult uh, for banks to, to keep up with that. Right. So, Enzat, you work in an interesting environment in Indonesia. Uh, yeah. Now, with social distancing and lockdown, you have closed down some branches. There are lesser physical cash transactions today. I mean, the mainstay of you know, money laundering in some of the emerging markets are really uh, physical transaction and uh, physical movement of cash. Uh, how has the financial criminals uh, been moving their cash amid COVID-19? Uh, in some banks also they already are close uh, uh, some branches especially in jakarta for my bank as well uh, we in jakarta only open for 30 percent of our branches but in out of jakarta it's about uh, 40 or 50 percent uh, only branches who uh, open uh, the operations and uh, for the uh, financial criminals right now, they are, uh, I think it's not really uh, different when they are doing uh, the crime, uh, moving their money because they they give uh, what's that, services like a mobile banking, internet banking. Uh, and also in these situations, when this is, they are the limitation for them to come to the branch to make a transaction. So some banks uh, make relaxation for them to uh, to do the transaction. The limit for mobile banking, let's say, is hon only hundred million rupiah per day for the uh, uh, doing remittance. But some banks right now uh, they relaxing uh, the limit, becoming uh, two hundred or until four hundred million rupiah per day for mobile banking. It means uh, for the criminals they can 
they still can move their uh, 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 the money, uh, which is uh, produced from the criminals, by using the internet banking or mobile banking. I think I trust uh, banks in Indonesia already implement EML system as well, such as in my bank, we can uh, trace the transaction. Uh, also, maybe large transaction, rapid movement, we, we, we can catch them. Uh, but it is quite challenging. It's quite challenging for us uh, to see the transaction. And uh, we'd like to also now invite uh, Michelle uh, to join the conversation. Um, uh, based on GBG experiences in working with banks around the world, can you share uh, how are they preparing themselves? Uh, and in the context of COVID-19, how are your banking clients responding to the crisis? So from a from a uh, financial crime manager perspective, there's there's really four key things that um, our customers are preparing themselves for today. And I think the challenge for fraud managers today is to really predict and pinpoint what's going to come up next, um, and make sure that they've got countermeasure defence ready for that. There's going to be an increase in misused identities in the form of identity theft first party fraud, synthetic identity fraud, and mule accounts. Yep. The second area um, that kind of relates to the new and emerging threats is the alternative revenue streams. So we are seeing businesses pivoting to, um, to meet the changing consumer um, uh, behaviors, the move to digital and mobile, and to become creative and, and open up new revenue streams. And the challenge for fraud managers is that they need to support this business pivot. Um, they, they need to, to be able to onboard customers and support the new business revenue streams in a safe um, and compliant way. The third and fourth one um, are actually being considered right now. And the fact that customer behaviors have changed. So if you take card fraud or card transactions, for example, it's all moved online, we're at home, we're doing at home purchases. There's a lot of card not present, um, and you know we're not doing the traditional overseas transactions and so on. So what this means is that the fraud um, operations teams need to go and recalibrate all of those uh, detection models, the um, the machine learning models that are based on um, uh, behavior deviations, um, and in, in particular, it's really important for the fraud operations and the investigations teams who are now working remotely to models recalibrated and alerts refashioned based on those remote working um, practices. So mm -hmm. the tips and, and how, how can we deal with these, these sort of changing um, operational considerations? point out here is that um, it's great news um, that the fraud managers have got some great capabilities and, and technologies available to, to, to leverage to help them optimize their operations uh -huh. to place these things. Um, now that we have moved to digital and mobile uh, banking offerings, we can use and leverage this data. Um, we can enrich customer onboarding, for example, with um, mobile and device attributes to make more informed uh, fraud decisioning. And we can use analytics to uh, really um, uh, understand that customer's um, persona. And we can look at the data within the consistency to really make that accurate um, decision about that, that, that customer in a lightning speed way. Um, so with technology now, we can, we can layer it and we can 
we can customize the detection capabilities um, on the customer operations are now putting a customer at the center of their um, at, at, at the center of, of everything really and and making sure that customer experience is great um, but they're also protecting the customer and uh, maintaining compliance for for the bank so I've got an example here um, of a customer and um, he's making a loan application via a newly launched mobile loan service now because he's an underbank customer, it means that there may not be a rich credit history and lots of data attributes available to be able to assess him for credit and fraud risk. But through enriching his application with this data that I talked about before and layering the different defense around uh, the customer needs, the fraud team can then actually support the business strategy of, of going mobile. So they might actually want to relook at him in a different way, which might enable the bank to onboard this customer, offer him a loan, but do it in a protecting and safe way. So here's an example of, of result that I talked about earlier. And if you just look at that application data, you'd probably say, no, we'll, we'll, we'll probably reject it. We don't have enough information available. There isn't a credit file there. Um, and you know we can't match it against enough information. But hey, look, if we can if we can layer in additional data such as the device information, the social information, uh, the email information. How how long has he had this email for? Is this email connected to um, social media connections? We can start building up a, a, a better fraud um, risk assessment. There's other ways of, of looking at credit risk as well for underbanked customers. So we can now start using mobile metadata to look at things around how, how credit worthy this customer is. So if we start looking mm -hmm. at additional data, we might actually offer this chat result alone, but well, because we don't have as much information, we might want to lower the loan amount and we might want to put them on an enhanced activity monitoring. Um, so by doing this, you know, we, we, can, we can onboard a good customer in a, in a safe and secure way um, and, and we can make sure that we've got a really good customer experience, but then also support the business as they're pivoting towards different um, revenue streams. So you're using uh, mobile data to uh, further enhance uh, risk assessment of customers. But at the same time, we hear of you know, uh, some of these criminals owning some of this information on their mobile phone. The balance between uh, risk assessment and you know, customer acquisition and, and so on. So forth. Yeah, sure. So in terms of how do you strike the balance, I think that the key thing really is is to ensure that you've got enough data points and layering them in and having a flexible approach to to how you're uh, risk decisioning a customer, because the, there isn't one uh, fail safe silver bullet available out there. You, you really do need to look at different different attributes and combine them together to get an accurate risk assessment. And so it's really important for technology um, to, to really have that capability to be real time and instantaneous. And there's two key things that really that are absolutely critical for technology in this space. The first thing is scalability, to be able to handle these vast amounts of data that we've got available. We are bringing in digital, we're bringing in device, customer, application, transactional data attributes. The second thing is we're now, we're now looking at an omni-channel approach to management. It's not just looking at one channel. So scalability and flexibility is absolutely imperative in a real-time mode. Roland, for a long time uh, in Singapore, there um, a few years ago, uh, there was a reluctance to share information um, among institutions. 
um, you know, uh, threat uh, information or, or attack information. But you set up the Cyber Fusion Center uh, in Singapore. It's a private public um, um, initiative. Did you find that the um, trends have changed and people are more interested in collaborating to fight cybercrime? Uh, so when I was in Singapore, um, it was uh, mainly to do with uh, the um, fight against cybercrime, working together with private industry. We had uh, collaboration agreements with uh, Kaspersky Lab, McAfee, uh, NEC Corporation, for example. Um, and uh, what they did is they actually, uh, you know, Interpol is staffed by uh, hiring staff, but also by people who are seconded from law enforcement. Uh, and what we what we added to that was that uh, actually companies could second somebody uh, to uh, Interpol uh, and they would have a, a quite a, a specific um, role in that. They would be, you know, not, well, I mean, they would be part of the team and actually there would be like uh, certain meetings and certain types of, of police information that they were uh, naturally not allowed to, uh, to see. Uh, at the same time, for, uh, building on that, we 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 wanted to to expand and to also add financial institutions. So I think that Barclays was one of the first banks actually to to also join this uh, uh, this this unique situation that that uh, looks specifically at threat intel, threat information that can be you know safely uh, uh, worked up to uh, information that that police internationally can use to combat crimes. Um, but from building on that, we uh, I remember some meetings we had. Where we actually invited most of the the Singapore banks to see if they you know what what their branches and their uh, and their regulations would 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 allow them to do. And the issue with that is that Singapore um, uh, is just quite strict on on its laws. I would say against uh, uh, getting market dominance for one of the one of the banks. I think that's one of the things that plays into that. Uh, and actually, Interpol organizing these meetings and just putting all these banks on the table together uh, allowed for them to have a conversation about about security and and, and to at least you know uh, not compete on that because it's in everybody's interest to to exchange this type of um, uh, information. And this kind of brings me to what we have in in the Netherlands, where we have a similar situation. We have a few big banks that uh, you know are not allowed to uh, you know make a lot of agreements amongst themselves, uh, but they also have an incentive not to compete on, on matters of security. Um, and what we found was um, that, well, um, there was a risk that individual banks would not go to the police when they had like a hacking case or something, because then, you know, one or two, two years later, maybe there will be a news article uh, and people say, oh, that bank got hacked. Uh, whereas actually the threat is real for all of them. So what we did is we we devised the electronic crimes task force, oh. and our uh, minister, uh, you know, the uh, minister of justice and security, he signed off on it, and they made like what we call a, a confidant. So it means that you can exchange more information than you're maybe normally uh, allowed to uh, for this specific uh, purpose. Right. So it's the sharing of the information of threat information um, right. that is important, right? It is, and if I can add, uh, like a, a final um, semi-institution that 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 works very well for the Netherlands, uh, especially now in this time of, of crisis, uh, it's what we call the the Information Sharing Analysis Center or ISEX. And with us, it's our uh, anti-crisis uh, and anti-terrorism uh, agency that is actually coordinating uh, for all the uh, 
uh, what we call vital infrastructure uh, sectors uh, to come together per sector, if you will. So the, the energy uh, companies or the uh, telecom companies or the, the financial industry. Um, and each of them will have regular meetings of their CIOs and CISOs uh, and uh, specifically to share information that uh, they can share uh, either uh, on like a, a level where they can can be shared onward to other sectors, but sometimes even what we call uh, through the traffic light protocol uh, and information where you actually, you know this in the back of your head, you go back to your organization and just see, okay, let's just see if we have the same problem. And of course, it, officially we're still, you know, it's, it's a time of crisis now and we see these type of uh, uh, softer networks uh, that, are, that are built on trust. Mm -hmm. Um, they are working uh, quite well and quite effectively uh, to, to combat uh, different, also COVID-related uh, cyber threat vectors. Anza, in Indonesia, maybe you can tell us uh, whether this there is a sharing of information uh, among the banks and financial institutions um, uh, and, and with um, the cybersecurity companies. What is the situation there in um, uh, Indonesia? Yes, uh, in Indonesia, we are on the way to, uh, to uh, implement for the public-private partnership, especially for the intel uh, to intelligence. Yeah, because uh, right now for the sharing information, we still uh, have the regulation for the Secrecy Act, uh, where there's the every information of the customer and information of their saving is secret is a secret for everyone. But uh, right now in 2019, actually, uh, our uh, OJK, uh, they already uh, issued the regulation, the, the revision for the regulation for the EML and CFT implementation. It is the regulation for information sharing, information sharing between uh, the, what's that? Uh, between the conglomerations. So they can uh, share the information for the customer due diligence implementation between conglomerations. Let's say in uh, Bank Mandiri, we have uh, uh, 12 subsidiaries. We are trying to manage uh, what kind of the information we can share to uh, our subsidiaries. But to other bank, if we have items or issues that we need to discuss or we need to information from other banks, we can discuss in working group within the uh, compliance director forums. I think uh in the future we will we need the public private partnership because uh, it will connect between uh, uh what's that the police let's say for fiu banks uh, private sectors or, or every uh reporting parties that uh, we need to implement for the mlcft richard um could you uh, talk us through the challenges um that a global bank like barclays faces in managing uh, evolving regulations, you know, uh, sharing of information for one uh, differs from country to country. Yeah, no, as far as uh, data sharing, a lot of banks are, are reluctant to do that. Um, places like uh, Singapore, Hong Kong have very strict um, expectations around uh, like personal information. Uh, and that's because they have a, a very strong um, private banking industry. But what they do do is uh, within uh, the Singapore public-private partnership is they provide the topology. The big challenges of doing that, um, I think a lot of the traditional banks have uh, fairly, um, I guess, 
static um, type systems, it's very difficult to change these uh, rapidly and add new technologies in on a regular basis. Um, but uh, I think you, there are examples with some of the uh, kind of the FinTech and tech fins out there that uh, actually do manage this quite well. Um, they use data analytics that can take in all of the uh, streams such as sanctions, trading, transaction monitoring, adverse news media. They can just take all that data in and they can create an assessment on the back of that. Um, and it's all digitized. It's very quick. Uh, it's cheap. Uh, and it's very flexible. Um, and sometimes it doesn't even require rules engine. They have a, an AI uh, element to it. And I think that is the direction that banks are going to have to go into. We'd we'll like to get uh, Michelle into the conversation. Uh, managing uh, a financial crime requires a more integrated approach across strategy, data process, technology. Uh, yet, you know, as Richard said, most institutions operate um, according to our functional silos. How can institutions build stronger and more integrated response? And uh, as uh, Richard mentioned, more agile response. You know. Over the past few years, I've seen um, a convergence across those silos, actually. So if we're talking about um, AML, info security, fraud, I, I really have seen a convergence, particularly on the AML and fraud mm -hmm. case over the past few years with the setting up of financial crime centres of excellence and, and so on. Um, more recently, um, I'm, I'm seeing a real convergence, particularly in the InfoSec and fraud side. And because we are seeing the perpetration of cyber-enabled fraud, there, there is a, a necessary need there to, to bring them together. And if you can share um, cyber threat intel with your fraud defence mechanism, oh. you can then move further up the fraud value chain. So you can start identifying precursors to fraud before it happens so that you can stop it from occurring, protect your customers and stop fraud losses from being incurred by, um, by the bank, for example. So yeah, there, there's, there's a real need there, it's happening um, and there's obvious business benefits to it, particularly in the digi, the digi space. So essentially, um, is there a difference in terms of uh, how banks cooperate or you know, this uh, public-private uh, partnership, right, in terms of sharing of information? Is, is there a difference between sharing um, uh, information, security, intelligence information versus actual fraud um, details? So if we look at mm -hmm. the banking sector in particular, um, where I focus on, there is a lot of information sharing. Um, it happens um, mm. formally, um, but it also happens quite, um, quite formally as well. So. Um, GBG, for example, um, provides shared fraud insights and identity verification solutions, which are federated, um, where we are providing insights across the industry. There's a lot of um, reporting to regulators, as ANZAN shared before, from an AML compliance perspective, and insights being shared back out. So that collaboration and insights is going on at, at various different levels um, within, within the industry and within organisations as well. So I think we'll reach it. Um, how, how can the effective application of technology such as uh, uh, AI, machine learning, data sciences build stronger intelligence-based defense against uh, financial crime? Uh, I guess the big change, and it's a necessary change that, that's coming through, um, is, be, is to be able to uh, use technology such as um, things like machine learning, but also uh, things like entity resolution, network analytics. Mm. Um, being able to go through larger amounts of data than what is done today and looking at all of the data at the same time. 
And that contrasts to what I guess a lot of banks do. Um, the KYC checks, one guy looks at adverse news media, another guy looks at sanctions, uh, earth level screening, somebody else looks at, uh, tries to validate the source of funds. And it's a very lengthy uh, process. But if you could take in all of the information that you need to build a risk profile for a customer at once, so take all these silos, put them into, funnel it all into one, one system, and then you can use data analytics across all of the uh, different uh, sources, and then that should be able to give you a very comprehensive view with a reduction in the uh, ever-present positives. Um, and that would be also backed up uh, with um, kind of electronic KYC systems. Are there opportunities there, there to you know leverage of a fintech? You know, uh, especially now with new uh, technology architecture, right? So in terms of what have we uh, now with open banking APIs and whatnot? Um, whether it's a fintech or regtech, um, following some of the fintech examples. Um, what how some banks, I guess, um, are, are doing that, I guess, fairly cleverly. I can uh, name drop one is like CBS, for instance. They simply buy these, uh, <laughs> uh, some of these fintechs. <laughs> now we're retooled. We can think like a kind of a small bank with that particular uh, area. And we've also got some, uh, some really good um, sort of a compliance processes that we can build off the back of that. And so I think, yeah. That is what uh, if banks want, if the traditional banks want to survive, they got to do something like that. They got to start buying up some of these fintechs and uh, the reg techs as well. And that, your, your thought on this, um, you know, uh, for Bankman Ziri, how, how are you uh, addressing uh, the technology that is required to uh, give you a, a few steps ahead of uh, the financial criminals in terms of integrating our data across the organization? Uh, data is very important, yeah, because uh, so that's why we are trying to build a database uh, in our bank so we can use the data analytics uh, between our uh, data in Bank Mandarin as well as in uh, our data with our subsidiaries. Yeah, so we will know how is the risk of our customer when they are on board to our, uh, our subsidiaries, you know, vice versa, something like that as well. Are, are you working more with uh, Rectech and FinTech as well? Are there, there acquisitions, opportunity, or targets? Uh, so far, yes, yeah, yeah, and uh, also for uh, we are we are using uh, the Rectech and FinTech as well because uh, we are uh, getting to the technology era right now. We uh, give a product as well with the online onboarding, so. The customer don't need to come into the branch to open the uh, the uh, the what's the, the account. They just use their uh, mobile phone and they can open the account. But still, the was it the steps for the customer identification process, uh, QIC, everything, and online we we screen everything and we use the EML also to uh, manage the transaction. So uh, we still uh, can monitor them even though. Uh, uh, using the technology. Okay, and, and uh, final question to, to Michelle. So as Richard mentioned, a, a lot of this enabling technology is there, uh, but you know, the, the issue for some of the uh, uh, incumbent banks is, is not just in terms of voting a, a new 
sort of system or solution. It's more to do with the whole organization, you know, in, internal structure, and also that you know a much you know, talk about legacy system, right? So which kind of uh, sometimes constricts you know what what you can do on the technology side. So uh, is is the more viable option looking at a fintech, uh, possibly uh, uh, writing off the capability of a fintech or a regtech, and you know um, you know onboarding the uh, technology onto their existing uh, system. Yeah, I think I think technology um, as a technology vendor, I'd say this, but has a has a huge mm. uh, <laughs> in, in, in supporting financial crime. And so, if you take machine learning for example, yeah. um, that's been used mm -hmm. yeah. for a number of years around um, detecting fraud and financial crime. Um, and it, you know, it really it, it really does help you trawl through those vast amounts of data that we're seeing today and find that needle in the haystack. Yes. Um, but it's mm -hmm. a silver bullet, um, and, and that's why you know I think it's really important that that as an organisation you you do have a lot of tools available to you that you can pick and choose from within your mm -hmm. ecosystem, uh, yep. depending on the type of customer, the the type of modus operandi, the the policy, the business strategy, mm -hmm. um, product, and so mm -hmm. that you can really tailor it um, to to your needs. Um, and I think it's it. It's really important to not forget about the the human factor involved in all of this, and that um, the technology is really only as good as the the humans that are implementing it, that are configuring it, optimizing it, and 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 tuning it. You can't just leave it and set and forget and, and expect to do something. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, you know there, there needs to be humans that are operating these these systems and and looking at the um, that the intelligence that comes out of it and doing something with it. Um, and and humans really are, you know, the investigators and the um, the triage analysts are, are such an important part of that mm -hmm. chain as well. So um, it, it really is an ecosystem approach that, that needs to be brought together to, to fight fraud and, and financial crime. In the past one hour, we've discussed how financial uh, crimes has evolved, uh, new crime typology that's emerging. Um, there's an increase, for example, from traditional Typology to more digital ones that prey on current vulnerability. You know, financial services has become more digital, yes, uh, enable greater uh, customer convenience, but at the same time also enable you know uh, cyber criminals to uh, also exploit some of the vulnerabilities. Regulators uh, do do have a role to play in terms of um, facilitating, encouraging more. Uh, sharing of intelligence. Uh, already today's regulation requires uh, regulatory reporting when it comes to fraud, when it comes to AML and so on and so forth. Uh, sharing of uh, typology, for example, but uh, obviously uh, much more uh, can be done. Uh, there, there is also uh, the, the need for technology today uh, in terms of uh, data analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning that can see through all the data within the organization that can reveal and help detect patterns of criminal uh, customer behavior that can you know, uh, identify uh, uh, fraud or financial threat. So, so these are some of the things that, that we've discussed. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, to our four experts. Um, we are grateful for your insights and for your time. Uh, we also appreciate all the listeners 
who are here who are with us and uh, and taking part in our polls. We hope to uh, stay in touch with all of you and do look up for the next Radio Finance episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.